0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, good and crazy martinis for you today. First, a quick correction. Thanks to a listener for pointing this out. I had said on Friday uh, with the NTSB report on what happened with the Norfolk Southern train in Ohio that a warning of an overheated axle had been ignored. Uh, that is not the case. Uh, they still tried to stop it with the handbrakes and so forth. I had conflated that with articles suggesting that Norfolk Southern had said it was okay for crew members just in general to ignore warnings at times, but that does not seem to be uh, the case here. So thanks to the listener for pointing that out, and uh, always happy to correct the record. So, uh, Jim, let's move on to our good martini, our first good martini. This is going to come as no surprise to you, Jim. Uh, You've been on this story for a long time now, Uh, and that is that there is uh, growing evidence and growing admission that the COVID-19 pandemic started not from a wet market, but from a lab leak. Uh, We've seen this kind of trickle out over time from being absolutely forbidden to say Completely reckless and conspiracy theory information uh, to now the Department of Energy, at least with low confidence at this point, saying that that's the case. Here is um, Catherine Herridge of CBS News talking about what the Department of Energy is saying and how it goes along with another important finding that we'll talk about in a moment.
0: Two sources familiar with the U.S. government's COVID-19 origins investigation tell CBS News there is new reporting from the Department of Energy that supports the lab leak theory as plausible. The sources confirm the Department of Energy has low confidence in the finding, first reported by The Wall Street Journal, though it's not clear whether that reflects weak data or a limited amount of information. While the new reporting is classified, the sources say they believe it may be separate from an earlier analysis by the Department of Energy's Lawrence Livermore Labs, which is home to some of the government's most qualified biologists. That assessment also pointed to a potential accidental lab leak in Wuhan, China.
1: Now, yesterday on CNN, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was saying that's not necessarily what the intel community has uh, concluded yet, but uh, we're keeping all options open here. Jim, obviously, we're inching in this direction officially. Uh, You have suspected this is the case for a long time. I know other people have as well. So how significant is this reporting from The Wall Street Journal that reflects what the Department of Energy believes now?
0: I think it's pretty darn significant, in part because it indicates that the investigation is indeed still going on. Listeners probably remember the declassified portion of the Intelligence community's report that came out in... 2021, I believe, and that basically said, but we don't know. Uh, They said that some agencies believed that natural origin was more likely one, which at the time had been unidentified, but we subsequently learned was the FBI uh, said that they believed that it was more likely to be a lab leak. And then there were some that were neutral or had not didn't lean in either direction, one of which was the Department of Energy, which was based on this Z division in Lawrence Livermore National Labs. I'll talk a bit more about that in a second. What's a little significant about the FBI is that actually their research comes from their folks who work at the National Bioforensic Analysis Center, which is over at Fort Detrick, Maryland, which is the group that basically is the U.S., everything related to bioweapons, they do their research. Now, again, I don't want to be misconstrued here. This is not saying that they concluded that it was a bioweapon. However, these are the folks who, you know, are doing the most research with the most dangerous stuff on our side. And if the FBI is working with them, okay, well, that does make it seem like they would, you know, really know what they're talking about. And oh, by the way, when the U.S. scientists who work with really dangerous stuff look at it and say, yeah, from what we know about their labs, they probably didn't have enough safety features. They probably didn't have enough trained personnel. We find it plausible. Well, I think that is, you know, they are people who know of what they speak because they do that sort of thing as part of their day jobs every single day. As for Lawrence Livermore, I saw last night some people saying, well, what what does the Department of Energy know about viruses and viral research? Uh, You know, these guys have no relevant expertise. That is about as wrong a statement as you can make. And I suppose I can forgive it if everything you know about the Department of Energy comes from watching Stranger Things. (laughs) But actually, I wrote about that. And I thought about it. like, actually, no, Stranger Things are working with biological material all the time. So, you know, no, you shouldn't have that conclusion. Lawrence Livermore Labs out in California, across the bay from San Francisco, is really, I'm sure every scientist who works at a whole bunch of our top level facilities uh, think theirs is the best, but Lawrence Livermore may well be, it, it's the its the top tier. It is, you know, the very top, primarily known for being part of where they research, develop and maintain US nuclear weapons. However, uh, that's what its mission started as, but year by year, decade by decade, its mission and areas of research expanded a great deal. People may recall, Lawrence Livermore was where they uh, recently believed they had a breakthrough on cold fusion. Until I started digging into it, I did not realize just how much it does, but one of the things the Department of Energy has over at Livermore is what they call Z-Division. Now that sounds really cool, and you're probably thinking of X-Files or something like that. Apparently it's called Z-Division because most of the other letters of the alphabet were taken. But basically their job was to research Soviet nuclear weapons and to work very closely with the intelligence community um, I mean, Lawrence Livermore Labs is part of the Department of Energy, but this part really probably ought to be thought of as part of the intelligence community. And why are these guys in there? Because they're really good, initially really good at knowing uh, nuclear, uh, everything related to atomic bombs and everything related to nuclear tests and, uh, you know, thermonuclear weapons and, and all of that. But as I mentioned, year by year, the kinds of threats that Lawrence Livermore and the Z Division was expected to keep track of expanded to include chemical weapons. It expanded to include biological weapons. And there are really two main categories of biological weapons, bacteria and viruses. And obviously, a lot of folks over there spend a lot of time studying viruses, studying their contagiousness, and how you would weaponize them and how you do a great deal of harm. So they do have a relevant uh, area of expertise. And this is just in Z Division. I would also note out that like CIA declassifies its materials basically about a generation late, but you can find a lot going back to the Kennedy stuff, going back to Vietnam. Uh, Z Division, very little of what they do gets declassified. When it does, there are whole pages that are redacted. Um, The parts that have been declassified are things like the Pakistani Nuclear nuclear weapons program, the Indian nuclear weapons program, things like that. But people who've worked there have done some brief interviews and just kind of talked about how One of the advantages of Z Division is that they have, uh, and also Lawrence Livermore, is that they just have so many different people who are such experts in so many different parts of uh, scientific research, physics, biology, chemistry, engineering, material science, computations, weapons design, that they really take pride in. They really believe they're the best of the best when it comes to weapons of mass destruction, proliferation analysis. They really should be thought of as almost an adjunct of the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community, specializing in really complicated scientific questions. Um, Lawrence Livermore scientists were a part of the teams that went over to Iraq back when we were inspecting uh, whether Saddam Hussein was attempting to develop weapons of mass destruction. Um, after the anthrax mailings, after 9-11, they were all being deployed all across the country. And one of the things that Lawrence Livermore really led the way, and I should give credit also to Los Alamos National Laboratory as well, Post 9-11, there's obviously great concern after the anthrax mailings, there was great concern about the idea of terrorists using some sort of biological weapon on them. Uh, And they basically developed portable uh, detectors, Uh, the types of things you could do, you could put in a location and they could do really quick analysis of air currents, see if they were detecting anything that looked like a biological weapon. First time they were used was over at Salt Lake City, Utah for the Olympic Games back in 2002. In other words, when you need to find biological weapons, these guys at Lawrence Livermore are who you call. People say, oh, what does Department of Energy know? Turns out they know a great deal. In fact, even more, but kind of you also jumped out at me, uh, is that they have a biosciences and biotechnology division. Now, they've been doing genetic research back to the 1960s because they wanted to understand how radiation has uh, affected human beings, you know, because of that early development of research related to nuclear weapons in the Cold War. Go figure, radiation is not good for human beings. Um, but they're also a major contributor to the Human Genome Project, and they're greg i looked it up the biosciences and biotechnology division some of their past studies have included quote how to better determine the origin of a virus now greg people were asking why would we ask the department of energy to do this because they've studied this exact topic in fact greg they studied how coronaviruses like sars and mers transferred from animals to human beings that seems relevant to investigating the origins of COVID-19. Portable virus detection technologies, mutations of viruses within human hosts, and of course, how viruses move through the air and how to develop. All of this stuff seems really relevant to investigating the origin of COVID-19. So in fact, this is exactly the kind of folks that should do this. Now, again, they only move from neutral or not having a be able to come to any conclusion to moving to saying with low confidence that a uh, lab leak is more uh, is more likely. So if somebody wants to say, ah, it's not that big a move, okay, I can see why you're coming with that. But the Wall Street Journal report said this was based on new intelligence. Didn't say what that new intelligence was. I would really love to know what that new intelligence was. But I think you can say, based upon the professionalism of the Livermore crowd, based on their experience, based on everything they've done in the past, they don't change their minds willy-nilly. They don't do things based on hunches. If whatever they saw in that intelligence was significant enough to them to say, you know what, We have to update our assessment. Based on this, we no longer think what we thought six months ago or a year ago. This does mean that the the investigation is not only still ongoing, it's finding new things that are making them uh, reassess their previous inability to uh, to make any determinations.
1: It's important that this keeps coming out. It's important they keep looking at it. And I think they're heading in the direction where everybody expects it to go. So... They seem to be doing their job on the up and up, but it just, you know, it it still grinds everyone's gears that whatever it was, three years ago for sure, maybe even as recently as two years ago, if you even mentioned the idea that this was a lab leak, you got your Twitter account suspended until you uh, took down your tweet and and Anthony Fauci called you a conspiracy theorist. I mean, the, the list of things that were once forbidden that you can now talk about because uh, the people who were talking about them originally turned out to be right. It's going to be a pretty long list. And so the things that that the government forced us to do pull our kids from school, and then we finally went back. They had to wear masks for a ridiculously long time. You couldn't have funerals. You couldn't be with a dying relative. You were told natural immunity didn't count for anything. And then you were told that you were a horrible person. You were going to kill everybody if you didn't wear a mask. And now we know that that didn't work. And now we have even more. We already had some, but now we have even more towards this conclusion that it came from a lab, which uh, you know, until relatively recently made you a horrible person. So uh, the win-loss record here. (laughs) <laughs> on the uh, on the skeptics is looking pretty good, and for the government, looking worse. Although you got to give credit to the government for being the ones that are pointing out that this is probably what happened in Wuhan. Now,
0: yeah, I mean, look, when we say the government, there, there there's a lot under that umbrella term, and my sneaking suspicion is that um, from the very beginning there were people within the U.S. government who didn't want to believe this. I think a lot of scientists like to think of themselves as being honest and have a hard time grasping that Chinese scientists over at the Wuhan Institute of Virology could partake in a cover up. I think it just kind of it offends them on some deep moral level that some scientists could do that. And thus they kind of like just they re- reject it. They just can't believe it. And the second thing is, and I, I've, you and I have talked about this on this podcast quite a few times now. I think some people genuinely believe that if we ever found smoking gun evidence, we the, let's say the NSA hacks their servers and finds an email that says, uh, oh, you know, OG's boss, I forgot to wear my my uh, protective material the other day. And now I've started coughing and I went to the wet market yesterday. You know, that kind of, you know, well, that's it. Um, I think people are afraid of the consequences of that. And I think that's, that's a reasonable fear. I don't think that justifies a cover up but there are some people who believe that if that you know were to be completely confirmed that china was responsible for a viral outbreak that has killed officially 6 million people i think we're coming up to 7 unofficially you look at all of the jump in the death rates in places like russia and china and everywhere else we're talking tens of millions of people who've died since the beginning of the pandemic that's not even counting the people who died because they didn't get a checkup, didn't have a mammogram, didn't have all these things that could have prevented their deaths, doesn't count the overdoses, doesn't count all the other million ways that our lot, doesn't count the learning loss, all the different ways our lives have been affected by this. The people would be outraged at China and and that, that they fear that outrage could lead to something terrible like a war. If you're afraid that revealing the truth about the origin of COVID nineteen will start World War Three, well, I can see why you feel that way. I can see why you wouldn't want to know the truth, but the rest of us wanna know the truth, come hell or high water. And no, I don't necessarily think it'll automatically lead to a nuclear war. I think it'll lead to like major protests outside of Chinese embassies. I think everybody who's ever lost somebody to COVID is gonna have an attitude of like, okay, and I'm never gonna you know, the Chinese I'm gonna make the Chinese government pay. You know, it'll be it'll be bad, it'll be ugly. But I don't think that says, okay, well we should cover up what happened there. So that's what I think is going on here. I think that there are portions of the government that really don't want this to be coming out and i can't help but notice greg that this happens this, this this report about what's over at livermore comes out to the wall street journal as the biden administration is trying to deter china from selling weapons <laughs> to russia i have no proof that those two are connected i just find that timing interesting and i wonder if the biden administration really wanted to believe that they were going to be able to rebuild a good stable working relationship with china they increasingly believe that they aren't going to be able to do it or this information is a certain amount of strategic um uh, shot across the bow of Beijing to say that the U.S. government doesn't have to have its current attitude towards the origin of COVID-19. That would actually be mildly impressive in terms of
1: logistical diplomacy, which makes me skeptical that they did it on purpose. But nonetheless, yeah, that's why, <laughs> that's
0: why we should not believe it.
1: That's, you know. <laughs> but if it was on purpose, uh, it might work. Uh, who knows? We'll we'll find out about that. All right, Jim, on to our second good martini. And like the first martini, it's a good martini in terms of the reaction to something horrible. So we're learning now more about the origins of COVID, which obviously was not a good thing. And now we're potentially edging towards bipartisan acknowledgement of a major problem as it uh, relates to our teens. There is a major problem with mental health. The CDC uh, back in the middle part of February published new research which uh, shows just how bad things are for our teens in terms of mental health. Uh, Reporting, quote, nearly one in three, one in three high school girls reported in 2021 that they seriously considered suicide, up nearly 60% from a decade ago, according to the CDC. Almost 15% of teen girls said they were forced to have sex, an increase of 27% over two years, and the first increase since the CDC began tracking it. And so... You've got uh, folks now, especially on the right, I think Josh Hawley, uh, the senator from Missouri, is pushing legislation to make it uh, illegal to open a social media account until you're 16. Not sure how you get around parents doing that for teens, but nonetheless, uh, he's he's concerned about people younger than that having their own social media accounts and and things like that. And now you've got the usually left-wing New York Times columnist, Michelle Goldberg, saying, you know, I think we do have a problem here. It's not just the right that's uh, raising hackles about this. And she says, if you look back, uh, it's, it really goes back to about 2012. And that's the year that social media really took off. Uh, you know, The selfie really took off around that time. Uh, and so she believes social media is a major problem. She doesn't talk that much about uh, the impact of social media within the context of the pandemic, which I think really accelerated things. But nonetheless, uh, you know, she says social media has not connected or united the world. It's tearing people apart and young people are suffering the most. She references a researcher who has spent her career chronicling social media's effects on kids and it's observed that the longer children use social media, the more likely they are to harm themselves. This finding held true for both boys and girls, but especially girls, depression and social media go hand in hand. So. Uh, Jim, I don't know that the left and the right are going to come up with a consensus on what to do about it. But the fact that they agree that this is a massive problem and they seem to agree on the root cause of it uh, is encouraging. So let's hope they can actually come up on some solutions that will do some good.
0: Yes, Craig. I think a bipartisan agreement on the scale of the problem and the immediacy and the pressing nature of the problem is a prerequisite to getting something done Uh, They're you know, not just in the era of divided government, like you want to get as much buy in as possible. Um, You you mentioned, I I think, I have a tough time believing that the pandemic and the, you know, uh, absence of schooling for so many kids for at least a year, but more in many cases, uh, wasn't a factor, but I I respect Jonathan Haidt, he's a social psychologist at NYU, uh, who's working on a book on this. And he makes an interesting note about, you know, when you look at adolescent mental illness, um the there wasn't a big covid spike in those numbers uh what you just saw was an intensification of a climb that had been going on for a decade um so he's basically saying this started since 2012 and it may have accelerated a bit but this is basically just a long continuing process Uh, look you know i've had my own fights with my own teenagers about screen time about what apps are appropriate about what things they can do online um and it really is very clear as i see things like TikTok co-sponsoring politico's playbook and axios and those other ones um that the social media companies really want both teens and for that matter preteens and parents and just adults and largely there is absolutely nothing wrong with teens using our products and i think the evidence is mounting well maybe there are some kids who can use those and not run into anything inappropriate and not have really negative experiences and not develop uh, body issues and you know be self-conscious about how they look and why they don't look like the other people on there, the people who are dancing, using all the filters and stuff like that. Um, but I think most teens are affected by this very badly. Uh, Greg, when you and I were growing up, we had to worry about not cyberbullying, but old-fashioned bullying, and the idea that somebody was going to meet you after school and try to beat you up or something, which was bad. Cyberbullying, you can be, you know, relentlessly mocked and and torn apart without knowing who's doing it. It, it is our our kids are growing up. some problems in our lives that we grew up with are are largely have receded into the background. But there are new challenges in their lives. and I have a very hard time believing that the social media companies have put kids interest first. There are certain things that might be okay for adults, you know, might not be okay for adults either for that matter. But, you know, that you at least the the adult brain is fully formed or at least it's it's gotten as far as it's going to go. Uh we can afford to have adult idiots running around. But teenagers, they still have potential. They still have hope for what they can turn into. The idea of social media Making them depressed, making them anxious, like the the teen years are full of depression, anxiety and uh, wondering where you stand. And does somebody like me? And I feel alone. I feel like that's all already existed before social media. So social media is just taking it, putting a, a powerful magnifying glass and making it, you know, intensifying it so much. So, look, I you know credit to you, Michelle Goldberg. I think it was very revealing. That the tone of her column had to be, hey, liberals, this really is a, a serious problem. It's you know, you don't have to say this is nonsense just because conservatives are arguing about that. I think it says something about the power of this reflexive negative partisanship in our in our lives. That, you know, that as long if Josh Hawley says something, liberals believe, well, it can't possibly be true. And that I think is one of the big things that has, you know, been a major impediment to this, this idea that, well, wait a minute. Any complaint the conservatives have about anything in society must be suspicious and must be rooted in hatred and greed and racism and and ethnocentrism and and blah blah xenophobia and all that kind of stuff. No, no, it really isn't a good idea for teens to be spending so much time looking at screens. No, I think that's right. And you look at the date on that 2012,
1: 2010. I feel like that's kind of when we started getting ramped up with all this gender identity stuff. And if you read books by uh, like Abigail Schreier and *The Irreversible Damage, which I have, uh, she says the worst thing you can do as a parent is give your kid a phone and access to social media because uh, the, the pressure on that uh, is, is absolutely intense if you're feeling bad about yourself. And let's be honest, what prepubescent teen or adolescent teen doesn't feel bad about themselves and their physical appearance from time to time. So um, not to make it too simple of a situation, there are a lot of different factors there. But um, the, the timing on that seems a little too much to be a coincidence. So uh, I'd like to see uh, an in-depth look at both of this, honestly, from, from both parties and, uh, and even in the private sector, where I think you're probably more likely to get better solutions from. All right, on to our crazy martini, Jim. And it's not often that we talk a lot about mayoral races. We did a couple of times last year in Los Angeles because um, Rick Caruso, a guy who had had ties to the Reagan Library and had been a republican for uh, much of his uh, career was making a pretty competitive run for mayor he made the runoff and ultimately was edged out by longtime democratic congresswoman karen bass so she is the mayor now a lot of problems in la homelessness being a massive one crime uh, drugs uh, lots of issues but jim she's figured out she's figured out how to how to fix this problem this is from fox news los angeles mayor karen bass called to remove obstacles for new police recruits Bass is looking to remove obstacles for police recruits who fail to initially qualify for training as a means of further diversifying the LAPD. According to a summary of her public safety goals obtained by Fox Digital, police union leaders though are questioning the move. Bass's summary of goals for police reform includes a list of provisions as well as dates by which the department must report back regarding progress. One provision says a deputy mayor will work in conjunction with a third party To evaluate the personnel process and identify obstacles to entry for recruits who fail to qualify for training. Uh, The police union, uh, meanwhile, says this is a terrible idea. There's a reason we have these tests. There's a reason we have standards. 100 is the maximum score. 50 is acceptable. There are folks that are scoring under 10. We don't want them on the force. And if they can't show that they have the mental or physical aptitude to be a police officer, that's a problem. But uh, Karen Bass is all about making sure that diversity is the number one goal of the police department, Jim. And so if that's the goal,
0: I'm not sure that a lot of these problems are going to get dealt with in in a a serious way. You know, Greg, if there's any police force that I think could probably lower its standards and just take anybody who walks from the door because they have so much trust from the community (laughs) and such a sterling record of serving and protecting and not engaging in any type of abuses or corruption or any bad behavior they'd want to cover up, it's the Los Angeles Police Department, don't you think? I, you know, they really, be, When people hear LAPD, they think high standards. And all, Look, for those serving in the LAPD, I, I hope that doesn't seem too snide. I know that obviously it is a very dangerous job, but unfortunately, the LAPD has a considerable, you know, long history of various scandals and abuses and things like that. The idea that you'd run around and say, well, you know, it's okay, we're going to lower the bar. If you, it, the society wants to go in two different directions. It wants police to do more, it wants police to handle more complicated situations. You've heard police lamenting that they're uh, expected to do things that are really the role of a social worker, except because the potential threat of violence means that they have to be present. They need to handle these situations with sensitivity. They need to handle these situations with uh, self, you know, cell phone cameras in their face, body cams on their on their uniforms, usually. They need to do this in a way that not just is correct, legally correct, They need to do so in a way that looks correct to people who don't know the law, who don't know police procedure, because if they don't handle it correctly, it could turn into a major uh, controversy, flashpoint, uh, point of tension, and who knows, maybe even stir up a riot. We've seen it before, right? So that's enormous pressure to put on those officers. You can't ask them to do a harder job and then say, we're going to lower standards for people who want to go in. Now I understand they have a major recruitment problem, not just in Los Angeles, probably in a whole bunch of communities. All right, well, maybe some of that reflects the fact that police are the universal scapegoat, or police are very often scapegoated, or I should say all police are scapegoated for the actions of, of the bad apples. And, you know, the kinds of young people who would go into a career in law enforcement have second thoughts about that. They're not sure they want to do that. Who wants to be the person who has to show up to a domestic disturbance or some other potentially violent situation, and everyone in the neighborhood thinks you're the enemy and you're the bad guy, and is itching for a fight to either... Uh, catch you doing something they perceive to be abusive, whether or not it actually is abusive, and who are eager to to start a ruckus, start some sort of sort of violent confrontation with you. Um, you you can't go in both directions. You can either have you know I'll tell you you can either uh, expect more from police, but at which point you have to expect more from the people walking through the door who apply to become police, or you can expect less from police, and then you can lower the standards for the kinds of people who come to police. I actually think that would turn out very very badly. So your choice, LAPD, your choice, Karen Bass, isn't it surprising that long after this, you know, lo and behold, she's in office and now she's trying to push it in both directions. We expect more from police, but we're going to let less qualified recruits get in and wear the badge. Hey, Greg, what could go wrong? (laughs) Exactly.
1: Two quick exit thoughts here. Uh, As you and I both know, Jim, the most sterling record in the history of the LAPD was from an African-American police officer at Nakatomi Plaza in December of 1988 with uh, Sergeant L. Powell. So uh, he was uh, uh, clearly uh, competent for the job, and so he, he met all the training standards. Secondly, Los Angeles, just a couple of months ago, you could have made a different path, could have made a different choice in what direction you were going. So, Jim, way to go, Los Angeles. For- <laughs> way to go.
0: I was going to say, uh, you know, Sergeant Al Powell had an absolutely sterling record. Other than the teenager he shot. Oh, there's that. But other than that. There's that.
1: There rede- was that. He redeemed other himself. Other than
0: that, it was terrific. And uh, you know. Anyway, Jim,
1: quite a way to start the week. We will talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thanks so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast and follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.